show them how they're not a burden. To the contrary, they are needed by us and by our community, and that we want and cherish their presence and participation in our lives. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me in conversation, a repeat guest from the Christian Legal Fellowship of Canada. We have the Executive Director and General Counsel, Derek Ross. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, David. Coming back a second time, and you are uh, well-versed in the law, but we are going back to the same, uh, barking up the same old tree here in a little bit of a way with um, MADE. And in particular, I want to talk to you about the delay in the expansion of MADE to include people who have a mental illness. So this came to us early 2023. Uh, Were you surprised at all by that? Well, in terms of the expansion of MADE, and and again, to be clear, what the government is is proposed here um, is to allow medical assistance in dying for patients whose sole underlying condition is a mental disorder. So in the past, mental illness itself was not a barrier to someone accessing um, medical assistance in dying if they were otherwise eligible, if they had a grievous and irremediable medical condition. Um, But now the government is saying that a mental disorder itself qualifies as a grievous and irremediable uh, medical condition or or can qualify uh, for that criteria in order for euthanasia to be provided. So this was one of the concerns that we and many other groups had throughout the process, going back to when medical assistance in dying was first legalized, was that it would and or could ultimately be provided as a so-called treatment option for mental suffering, for mental illness. Um, so it, it has been something that proponents and activists um, and advocates have been arguing for for many years. So in that regard, it was not a surprise. I think what was surprising, though, is just how quickly it made its way through the legislative process. Um, When the previous law was proposed, Parliament was adamant, the Minister of Justice was adamant that it would not include uh, mental illness uh, as a criteria for euthanasia. Um, And so that bill, Bill C-7, made its way through the House of Commons um, with a clear exclusion. Um, But then in the Senate, uh, a group of senators pushed for this law to be expanded uh, to include mental illness, and that was ultimately adopted by the House of Commons without a whole lot of debate or dialogue. Um, That was back in April of 2021. Uh, But what they said was that they would be um, including what they call the sunset clause. And the sunset clause meant that... um, mental illness would be excluded until March of 2022, um, which is where we are now. Uh, But in the meantime, public awareness grew, public concern grew. And in last December, the justice minister announced that uh, more time would be appropriate. And so they delayed the implementation of euthanasia for mental disorders for another year until March of 2023. So that's where we are right now. Well, it's a good overview. So, uh, and just broadly speaking, MADE came into effect in Canada in 2016? That's right. And initially, it was limited to uh, patients whose death was reasonably foreseeable. That was the language that was used. Um, so it was presented as uh, an end-of-life option 
um, for patients who were already dying or who were already near death. And the idea was that made initially was presented as hastening an already foreseeable death. Um, that was the first version, we'll call it, of assisted death in Canada. Uh, but there was pushback on that. A number of advocates felt that that was still too narrow and that people who were not already dying should also be eligible uh, for assisted death. And so there was a court case at the Quebec Superior Court called Truchon, and there the um, court, the trial court, the trial judge agreed that uh, for reasons uh, put forward by the plaintiffs, that MAID should be uh, accessible to them, even though they were not dying. Um, and the federal government, surprisingly, did not appeal that decision. Uh, so it basically accepted the decision of a single judge of the trial court in Quebec and agreed to expand the law for the entire country so that now it was not uh, limiting euthanasia only for people whose death was reasonably foreseeable, um, but people at any stage of life, so long as they otherwise met the criteria. And uh, one of the concerns was, well, um, now if we're going to provide death, basically offer death to patients um, as a solution for their suffering, we can't differentiate between people whose uh, conditions are physical and patients or individuals whose conditions are considered mental illnesses or mental disorders. And so that is where now we have this law that's being put forward to say that um, whether it's an underlying physical condition or an underlying mental condition, individuals should be able to access assisted death. So for listeners who aren't familiar with the work that you do, I'm just curious as to how this process of where we are now with this year being backed up, what it says to you as an organization, because like you said, it went through uh, all these closed doors uh, pretty quickly, but it was the public backlash that has really held this thing up. Well, I think in terms, yes, of, of the recent delay, and the government has made it clear, by the way, that it is just a delay. Uh, for uh, made for mental illness. They don't seem to be interested in um, placing a hold on this any further than one more year. But I think it has been the result of a lot of Canadians becoming more aware, first of all, of what assisted death is and what it's become and becoming in Canada, uh, but also more and more people growing deeply concerned with how this is unfolding. We've seen stories, too many stories being reported about individuals who are resorting to MAID because they feel they have no other option to escape poverty or homelessness or social suffering, um, about individuals who have been offered MAID proactively, even when they weren't seeking it. And uh, reports from the federal government itself have confirmed that hundreds of Canadians who died by made so far, needed disability supports or palliative care, but couldn't access them. So we have this regime that's been implemented, but there are more and more concerns that are growing. And I think it underscores the need for everyone to be aware of assisted death. I think a lot of people view MAID or perceive MAID as being this limited, exceptional procedure that is provided um, at the end of life to someone who is already dying, just to hasten that already imminent death. But in reality, 
Uh, over 10,000 Canadians died by maid in 2021 alone. And for many of them, the reasons that they reported seeking maid uh, were not necessarily because of physical pain, uh, but because of other forms of suffering. The report showed, for example, that more than half, almost 60% of those 10,000 people sought made in part because they perceived that they had lost their dignity. Um, almost one in three of those 10,000 people reported that they sought death because they perceived that they were a burden on their caregivers or their loved ones. Um, hundreds also reported emotional distress or anxiety or fear or existential suffering as the nature of the suffering that contributed to their decision. And um, almost 1,800 people listed isolation or loneliness. So these, these are the factors that are contributing to requests to die in Canada. And this is before we've even expanded it for mental illness. Um, so already we're seeing, I think, that assisted death is is becoming something um, very different in kind from what it was initially proposed to be. Um, one human rights expert described it as a, a massive shift that, that MAID was initially presented as a means to escape suffering in death, and now it is being presented as a means to escape suffering in life. And um, I think that's a really powerful characterization of where we are right now. So... There's a year, that's the timeline, and the outlook still seems what you would consider to be grim, that the expansion will happen, but they need to uncover more research is what the reason for the delay is. What research will they be able to warrant this with to be able to make the public appeased with going forward? Well, I think that's a really good question, uh, David, and I think the answer is really in the question itself, which is that a year is not adequate time um, to address the many issues that and the many concerns that have been raised. So maybe I can just speak to some of those concerns that have been raised uh, about uh, made for uh, mental disorders. Um, the, the first is this concern about, you know, when we offer made for a mental disorder, there's a concern about how that can possibly be reconciled with suicide prevention as a public policy goal. So uh, the Canadian Association for Suicide Prevention, um, they issued a very powerful statement last year. Um, and they said, when considering MAID in the context of someone who is not dying as a result of their condition, such as a mental disorder alone, we are talking about suicide. By the very definition of suicide, which is the act of killing oneself, if the condition from which they are suffering is not killing them, then the act of providing medical assistance in dying is doctor-assisted suicide. So there's this concern that now, how do we hold suicide prevention in one hand and suicide assistance in the other, and which do we offer to whom? Uh, so the law is kind of sending this, not kind of, it is sending uh, a contradictory message. On the one hand, we're saying we want to prevent suicide. We, we are saying that all lives are important and worth living and there's hope and we want to support you. And no situation is so bad that you can't find light and purpose and meaning in life unless your suffering is connected to 
an illness or disability. Disability-related suffering is the only type of suffering in Canada that qualifies you for suicide assistance, a state-sponsored death. And so that is why so many disability organizations and human rights experts um, and us at Christian Legal Fellowship are deeply concerned um, because we're singling out suffering associated with a disability as different in kind from everything else and as not meriting the exceptionless protection of the law. And what's especially concerning about that is that suffering associated with a disability um, is itself often caused or exacerbated by not the disability itself, but external factors, social inequalities, um, socioeconomic barriers, even cultural attitudes. And so that raises this really profound ethical question of, you know, is it ever appropriate to end someone's life in response to suffering caused by societal deficiencies and barriers and, and systemic problems? Um, and, and so I think it's, it's helpful to ask ourselves, you know, if we put this in a different context, we, would, we can ask, would we allow other groups of people who are discriminated against and who experience systemic barriers and social suffering, say because of their race or their gender or their sexual orientation, would we say to them, we will help end this suffering by ending your life? Would we say the isolation or the distress, the anxiety, the perception that you don't possess dignity, all of which are caused by societal and social attitudes, would we say though that qualifies you for a state-sponsored death? Hmm. And I, of course not. We would say and do say that is a travesty. Mm-hmm. And we will devote all of our resources to end this suffering, not by ending your life, but by bringing an end or trying to bring an end to the systemic deficiencies and inequalities that are causing your suffering. But we don't say that for persons with disabilities. And that, I think, is why this law is inherently discriminatory. Yeah, I can't help but think of the funeral for Ontario's former lieutenant governor earlier this year. And he was just so intentional, even in his TV reporting days, that the disability he had be seen by viewers, that it you know, wouldn't be hidden so that people like him could have access. That's what he was fighting for, to raise awareness for those with disabilities. And you know what you just shared? It just kind of seems on the surface that it's sending the complete opposite message of that. I think it really does. It really does undermine the incredible and important good work that so many in society have done to remove some of these stigmas and barriers. There's still a lot of work to be done. Um, but that is why, and what I'm articulating is not my own original thinking. This is These are concerns that many within the disability community uh, have expressed concerns around these issues. Um, but yes, our, our former Lieutenant Governor David Onley was deeply concerned about this very issue. Um, and in fact, uh, signed on to a letter um, that a, a group of advocates um, and Christian Legal Fellowship uh, uh, sent to our leaders expressing concern about the messaging that this law sends. And so it's hard. That is why we would say, David, that a year delay is not the answer, um, that this is a, a policy that 
should not just be delayed, but retracted entirely. Um, but even if you don't agree with all of those concerns, experts have also raised concerns about the um, medical, some medical questions around this issue, because there's still a lot that we just don't know about mental illness, about its, it's not like other illnesses where pathologies are better known and there's some predictability or at least probability of how uh, experts think it might progress. Um, there's not certainty in the medical community about whether a particular case of a mental illness is remediable or not. Um, and many have raised concerns that there is not, in fact, even an established medical standard of care for defining irremediability in mental illness. So organizations like the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, um, the Association of Chairs of Psychiatry in Canada, which includes the um, psychiatry department heads of all 17 medical schools in Canada, um, they've expressed concerns that, uh, at the very least, at this time, we don't have adequate uh, understanding, knowledge, or even guidelines and standards to implement this um, appropriately. So that is, I think, in part why the government has put this one-year pause. But again, I think putting a cap on the delay, saying uh, we're, we're going ahead with this regardless in one year, um, it's really putting the cart before the horse. It feels like the die has been cast, and it seems to reflect a lack of openness to what the research might reveal, first of all. Um, and second of all, that they're putting a shelf life on the amount of time to develop this. It's, it's hard to think of another area of policy where we would say, yes, we need more research, we need more guidelines, but we're putting a hard cap on the time you have to do it. And ultimately, we've already determined what we're going to do anyway, and when we're going to do it, and we've entrenched that into our law. Instead, I think, we should be saying, unless and until the evidence demonstrably determines otherwise, we should not be moving ahead in experimenting with a policy like this one. Mm -hmm. Derek, if this goes through as it's uh, proposed to next year, what would that say about the role that someone like a counselor or a psychiatrist has if uh, this option is suddenly on the table uh, are we now undermining what psychiatrists can do to help people if there's a greater help of of just ending their life well I think that's a very serious concern I think it does blur the line as we discussed earlier between suicide prevention and suicide assistance I mean how do you how do you offer both to the same patient? And as you say, how do you reconcile this with the under, underpinning ethos of many psychiatrists which is and, and others that offer support to those struggling with mental disorders, which is to always offer hope to a patient, to say, we want to help you rediscover the meaning and purpose and value that is inherent in your life. Some have questioned, how does a psychiatrist do that now? How do you encourage life-affirming treatment when one of the treatment options you are now expected to offer, or that your profession at least is expected to offer, is death. And I think that does raise a lot of serious questions about not just an individual patient's case, but about what is our priority and what are the philosophies and principles that we're committed to 
um, as a society uh, through our publicly funded healthcare system. Derek, in the time we have left, as you've been uh, going through this with a fine tooth comb, how has this challenged and confronted your perspective on life and the conviction to fight for it? That's a great question. I think one thing that I've tried to be open to is recognizing, first of all, that this is a very complex issue. And obviously, I've shared my perspective. Um, Others have very strongly held views um, from a very different perspective on this issue. And so one thing I have tried to do is, even where I disagree with some of the um, ideas and arguments, is to try to reach across that space of disagreement and try to have a better understanding of where others are coming from. I mean, this is a complex issue. And anyone who's listening who has had a loved one suffer with uh, a mental disorder or any um, you know, difficult medical condition, obviously everyone is wanting to help that person and to try to end their suffering. And the question, though, is what is the appropriate solution to that suffering? What solutions do we offer as a society, as things that we present as a public good that's publicly funded, that we're promoting as a choice-worthy treatment option? And so those are all things I think that we have to to bear in mind. I think, though, what um, this has also underscored is that there is a lot of suffering in our world. There always has been. There is a need for hope. And as you look at some of those statistics that I cited earlier, those really heartbreaking statistics of people who want to die because they feel they're a burden on others or because they feel they have lost their dignity or because they're lonely and isolated, I think that shows that there's so much work that we need to do as a country. And uh, for those that are listening who are members of the Christian community, that we need to do as a church uh, to support those who are struggling so that they don't need to view death as a so-called solution, that they can realize and that we can help um, show them how they're not a burden. To the contrary, they are needed by us and by our community, and that we want and cherish their presence and participation in our lives. And so I think we can talk about a lot about the law and public policy And those are really important places for us to be engaged. And I would encourage people who are listening to be engaged and to express their concerns to their representatives. But we also recognize that there's so much work we need to do just in our communities and the people around uh, our neighbors in supporting them and showing them um, how much we love them and how much we need them in our world and in our lives. It's a hopeful note that we'll have to end on for this conversation. Really appreciate your expertise, even in conversation with Derek Ross from the Christian Legal Fellowship. And if you want to read up on this and get better familiarized, they've got a a great resourceful website over at christianlegalfellowship.org. Derek, thanks again for joining me on the show. Thanks so much for having me, David, and, and thanks so much for your engagement on this important issue. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. New survey results from Arosha Canada and Tier Fund drop next week, and they're groundbreaking. Young Christians want to see more action on climate change and creation loss. So don't miss my conversation with Tier Fund's Matthew Schroeder as we dig into the results, the priority of climate among young Christians. 
the role they want to see of creation care in sharing the gospel and why the church is so low as an influence to them on this topic. So when it comes to the reality that Christians need to care for creation, I don't actually think that many are opposed to that reality. I think you've really hit the, the issue on the head that there's a fear of drifting away maybe too far from the gospel. I think there's also fears around government overreach and things to do in politics. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.